0: Maybe this will be the year that the Supreme Court takes a student speech case. Like, lo and behold, now it's finally happened, 2021. I didn't think it would take that long.
1: Hello, this is As a Matter of Law, the University of Richmond Law Review podcast. This year, the Supreme Court will weigh in on the question of whether school officials may discipline students for off-campus speech. Mahanoy School District v. BL, which is on appeal from the Third Circuit, is scheduled for oral arguments later this term. The case raises an important question. When should schools be allowed to punish students for things they say outside of school, online or on social media? And if so, when? To answer that question, it helps to understand what students can say when they're at school, and the seminal case in this area is Tinker v. Des Moines Independent School District, decided by the Supreme Court in 1969. I asked Richmond Law's very own Professor Judd Campbell why that case is so important.
2: Well, in Tinker, there were some schoolchildren who were interested in protesting the Vietnam War, and they decided to wear black armbands to school as a way of protest. Uh, And when the administration found out about that, uh, this was a high schooler and a middle schooler, uh, the administrators decided to create a policy that students were not allowed to express themselves in this way by wearing a black armband. And so when the Tinker children went to school in violation of the policy, uh, they were suspended and they challenged the suspension and the case, uh, case made its way up to the Supreme Court.
1: And what did the court hold in Tinker? And what does that tell us about students' free speech rights at school?
2: The court held that the students did have free speech rights. Um, Interestingly, they didn't have the same type of free speech rights that the court would normally recognize uh, against other types of governmental action. So for several decades, the court had used a test called the clear and present danger test. And the court didn't apply that test, uh, but it did recognize uh, that there were speech rights that students had at school. So uh, the one of the more famous passages from the court's opinion, uh, they said it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. So the court uh, recognized that there were some special characteristics of schools that required a little more leeway for the government to restrict speech, but also that the students had uh, at least some degree of speech rights. And so the, the basic uh, test that the court adopted in Tinker was to ask whether or not there would be any substantial interference or substantial disruption from the student's activities, uh, and particularly disruption to the schooling related, uh, functions. And so the court articulating that standard made clear that simply, uh, administrative desire to avoid controversy wasn't enough, that students can say things that are controversial, uh, that by itself is not enough. Rather, there needs to be this uh, more significant interference or disruption of school-related activities. So provided they
1: don't cause substantial disruption at school, students don't lose their rights to freedom of speech at the schoolhouse gate. But with many schools forced into online learning environments by the pandemic, the concept of the schoolhouse gate has become a little more fuzzy. How are students exercising their rights to freedom of expression in the world of Zoom and Microsoft Teams? Can they get into trouble for doing so, even if, like the students in Tinker, they protest in total silence? After the presidential election last year, one student, Kenton Visnos, suspended after staging such protests during his virtual classes at his high school in Henrico, Virginia. I asked Monique Gillum of the Virginia ACLU who represented him, what Kenton actually did.
3: Kenton started his protest basically to raise awareness around the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Kenton um, as, as most of the world um, sort of uh, he was upset by what he was seeing in his community, but also by the lack of conversations taking place um, within his school. And so within his school is of course, his virtual school. Um, and so he started to do a virtual protest and it started off by um, having a slideshow in his background. And ultimately he got to a point where he had a static uh, image um, of men and women who have uh, lost their lives um, at the hands of, of police. And so he was protesting police brutality uh, in his remote classes, and did so by having a static image in his background. But he was ultimately suspended for it, twice.
1: What's your your legal argument as to how this doesn't fall under that, that Tinker standard?
3: For Kenton, it was a passive protest. There was no sound. There um, was no discussion, really, about the, about the image. Um, And just as if he uh, were in class and could wear an armband, it was just that passive. Um, And so for Kenton, it was not a disruptive uh, protest. Um, There were teachers who um, took issue uh, with, with the image um, and reported him to the principal. Um, But in terms of it, it, being something that was disruptive, I don't think that anyone could argue um, that it was.
1: Despite the apparent lack of disruptions at the school, Kenton was suspended.
3: Any suspension, any amount of time taking a kid out of the classroom um, is disruptive to their to their education. but to be suspended twice once again for, for two days and again for ten days um, as a senior in high school can be, can be um, startling.
1: Ultimately, Kenton's PowerPoint protest had a happy ending.
3: Uh, they removed the suspensions from his record. Um, he was allowed to continue his silent, non-disruptive protest. Um, and in a couple of weeks, he'll graduate. And so we are excited that he had um, this experiment in democracy and that ultimately, um, you know, his rights, his rights were protected.
1: Since 1969, when Tinker was decided, what has the court said about student free speech rights?
2: Well, there's not a lot of case law... Uh, but we see another a number of cases where the court has limited the applicability of the Tinker test or at least recognized that the substantial disruption principle uh, still leaves school administrators with some pretty considerable leeway to restrict student speech. Uh, so there are a number of cases to highlight here. Um, one of them is the Bethel School District versus Fraser case. Uh, This is a case in which at a student assembly, this is a high school age student uh, gives this speech and the speech is um, it's not uh, on its face sexually explicit, but it's just full of sexual innuendo and double entendre. Uh, And so the court uh, gave the the student who gave that speech uh, was disciplined and the court uh, ended up ruling in favor of the administrator, saying it was okay for the administrators to try to maintain uh, some civility norms when students uh, participated in school related activities. And so uh, it said it was okay to, uh, and here's a quote, to prohibit the use of vulgar and offensive terms in public discourse taking place in schooling. And this is recognizing um, not just that it's a uh, sort of environment in which there are a bunch of children and the children uh, have a sort of uh, sensitivity that the court recognizes in a lot of its cases that it wouldn't um, otherwise recognize in the adult context. But it's also recognizing, uh, interestingly, the educational function of, of schools and school administrators and the sort of moral formation function, at least with respect to civility. Uh, and so that that's an, an, an important, uh, maybe not a, a step back from Tinker, but at least to clarification that Tinker didn't have the sort of expansive scope that some people might have otherwise thought. The courts had a couple other uh, cases uh, since then. One of them is, is called the Hazelwood versus uh, Kohlmeyer case. And this is a case in which the court recognized that student speech Uh, is distinguished from uh, where students have this uh, uh, right to speak subject to the substantial disruption standard. That's distinct from uh, student speech as part of a newspaper or other uh, school-sponsored activity where the court says the school itself has an interest in trying to maintain uh, some content-based limits on what students say with the support of the school. Uh, so they allow for school administrators to exercise a form of censorship over student publications in a way that they wouldn't uh, otherwise, um, uh, That that isn't subject to the the Tinker substantial disruption standard. Uh, so that again, um, maybe not a step back from Tinker, but at least a clarification of the way that Tinker doesn't uh, necessarily open up uh, a lot of student speech rights. Um, And the standard that the court uses instead is simply to ask whether there's a valid educational purpose uh, for the the censorship of the student newspaper.
1: The Kuhlmeyer case was decided in 1988, but it would be almost 20 years before the court tackled another student speech case.
2: The court had this um, really bizarre case uh, about 15 years ago called Morse versus Frederick, where these students who are just trying to seek attention uh, at a um, uh, sort of parade that was happening nearby the school uh, put up a sign that said, Uh, bong hits for Jesus, which was not like a sign that projected any coherent message, they were just trying to be funny. Um, And the school uh, administrators, uh, once again, disciplined the students. And um, the court uh, upheld the discipline, saying that it didn't violate the students' speech rights. And uh, it did so by saying that the school had an interest in ensuring that students at school-sponsored activities didn't promote drug use. Um, and, uh, and then the court clarified, and I'll just uh, read a quotation here, uh, quote, there's some uncertainty at the outer boundaries as to when schools should apply school speech precedents, but not on these facts. So the court's recognizing here that there isn't uh, perfect clarity, but that at least with respect to this uh, parade happening right next to the school, essentially sponsored by the school. The school administrators had told the students they could go out uh, and watch the parade go by and um, And various school administrators were present. At that sort of event, a school-sponsored event, uh, students weren't allowed to engage in drug-promoting speech. Um, That doesn't provide us with a lot of clarity, though, about how it might or might not apply outside of that context to something that isn't school-sponsored or something that isn't uh, drug-related speech. Uh, we just don't have a lot of clarity from the Morse case. Um, that was a case in which uh, many of the justices disagreed with each other, and the majority opinion is written in a pretty narrow way.
1: So in more than 60 years since Tinker,
2: the court has decided
1: only three student speech cases. Fraser, which dealt with vulgar speech in a school assembly on campus, Hazelwood, which dealt with school-sponsored speech in a student newspaper, and Morse Street Frederick which was a school-sponsored event, but what the court hasn't dealt with is a case involving student speech that takes place off campus until this term, when the court granted cert on Mahanoy School District B.L., Professor Emily Goldwaldman of Pace University is a leading authority on student speech issues. She and a group of law professors filed an amicus brief in the Mahanoy School District case. I asked her how the case came about.
0: So this case involves a high school student who had been on the cheerleading team as a freshman, and she was on the JV team. And then she tried out again the following year. So when she was gonna be in 10th grade, sophomore, she again got put on the JV team. And she was annoyed that she didn't get put on varsity. And especially because it turned out that there was another ninth grader, so a year younger, who did get put on varsity. So, She was frustrated and she posted on Snapchat and I think about like 250 of her friends on Snapchat saw this. She posted a picture of her and it was also another student and they both um, were giving the middle finger.
1: The caption to the photo read, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. One of her Snapchat friends took a screenshot of the post and sent it straight to one of the cheerleading coaches. Several students had been upset by the post and expressed their concern that the snaps were inappropriate. So the coaches decided that BL had broken team and school rules that, among other things, required students to have respect for the school and coaches, to avoid foul language, and to refrain from sharing any, quote, negative information about cheerleading online.
0: Those are very broad rules, right, that you can post anything on the internet that, you know, might tarnish the um, image of the school district. But so they see her these Snapchat posts and she gets punished. They kick her off the team. They say she can try out the following year, but she's kicked off the team. And so she, um, her parents acting on her behalf, file a lawsuit and they say this violated her First Amendment rights, this school punishment of her speech or off-campus speech, the, the Snapchat posting violated her First Amendment rights. And what they're mainly focused on, as you mentioned, is the case of Tinker versus Des Moines, which obviously totally predates Snapchat, or even the idea of any digital speech that involved on-campus speech. Um, But most circuits, most courts um, have said, have adapted Tinker to the off-campus speech context. And they have said that even when it's a student's off-campus speech, and of course today it's mostly internet speech, right? Even when it's off-campus speech, they've said schools can restrict it when the speech is likely to reach the school and cause a substantial disruption there. And so she sued, and she won, actually, in the district court. The district court just applied Tinker and basically said, yeah, this didn't cause any sort of substantial disruption. It went up to the Third Circuit, and that's where things really get interesting, because the Third Circuit affirmed, but on even broader grounds. The Third Circuit said, we don't even think Tinker applies. We don't even think schools basically have the authority under Tinker to restrict, regulate students' off-campus speech. Tinker, they said, is really just about on-campus authority. And in doing that, the Third Circuit really split from the other circuits. The other circuits, like I said, had been moving toward this rough consensus that, yes, Tinker can give schools jurisdiction over students' off-campus speech, again. When that speech is likely to cause a disruption at school. Third Circuit says, no, we don't even think it does. The Third Circuit, um, interestingly, did have this carve out where they said um, off campus student speech threatening violence or harassing particular students or teachers. And they said, our opinion takes no position on school's bottom line power to discipline speech in that category, right? So they sort of say, tinkers out the window. You don't have tinker. You might have some other authority in those sorts of cases, but we're not going to say what that is because that's not raised here. So they affirm on super broad grounds. And the school district then filed a petition for a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court. And a number of groups, even at that time, filed amicus briefs urging the Supreme Court to take the case. Um, And one of the big groups that did did that was the National School Boards Association on
4: yeah.
0: um, the NSBA, saying basically, you know, there's this huge circuit split now where other circuits have said that schools do have the authority under Tinker to regulate off campus speech. And now the third circuit has said that they don't have that authority. And in addition, they sort of wiped out that authority, but now they didn't say what schools can do when they're faced with off campus speech that is harassing you know, but maybe doesn't rise all the way to the level of being such a true threat that it's unprotected by the First Amendment altogether. So they basically say, Supreme Court, we need your guidance. The truth is um, school districts have needed the Supreme Court's guidance for a very long time about off-campus speech and the Supreme Court just had not taken a case on it yet. Um, And if anything, that guidance is needed now more than ever um, because just so much student speech now is online and especially with the pandemic when you have, students at home a lot, so they're communicating online more than ever. So in any case, the Supreme Court agreed and they granted cert.
1: But what guidance should the Supreme Court provide? With oral arguments just days away, I spoke with Ariana Demas, who is part of the legal team representing BL.
4: I believe that the Third Circuit um, got it right in terms of articulating a standard. Um, You know, what the Third Circuit essentially said was that speech that that occurs off campus um, by students that is not, you know, intimidating, threatening, harassing, or bullying, um, deserves First Amendment protection, and um, we we think that that's right. We think that you know the the free speech implications of this case go far beyond. Um, just one cheerleader posting her frustrations on Snapchat at the cocoa hut on the weekend. Um, But really this case could really truly change the free speech rights for millions of students um, who go to our country's public schools. Um, And so, you know, I, I think it's really important to realize that students are citizens with full first amendment rights, students are kids. Um, Students are not students 365 days a year, 24 seven for all purposes. Um, And so students and young people um, have a first amendment right to speak their minds on their own time. And the school just doesn't have the same um, interest in punishing them or regulating their speech for speech that they say on their own time. Um, And I think that Kenton's Case just tying it back to Kenton's case, I think that's sort of a great example of how um, schools interpret, already interpret their authority under Tinker as going far beyond what it actually is or what it actually should be. And so the school in Kenton's case, you know, felt entirely entitled to discipline him for his Black Lives Matter protest. When in reality, that argument failed Tinker. Um, they they should not have been allowed to discipline him. And so that's sort of a good example of, you know, look at what schools think that they can do now on campus. If you were to extend that same standard to off campus, um, you know, it's, it's pretty frightening to think about how schools might abuse that power. I and mean, if they are able to regulate students' speech at all times, when they're not in school, when they have nothing to do with school, when they're you know, hanging out with their friends at the convenience store on the weekend, like BL
1: was. Some aren't so sure about the Third Circuit standard, as Professor Waldman explains.
0: Our brief takes the position that what the Third Circuit did is not the right approach. Schools should have some authority over students' off-campus speech, but in narrow circumstances. So we're totally sympathetic to the idea of um, students need to have a decent amount of protection for their off-campus speech. Um, But the three-factor test is, number one, it's about the nature of the speech itself. So the way that the brief phrases it is it says, the speech must not comprise bona fide commentary on matters of public concern or bona fide critique of the student's school or the school officials, right? So that first piece I think is important because it's saying, Look, there could be some speech that is critical of the school, but you know that's okay. We want to protect that. Um, now, this wasn't so much going on in this case necessarily, but there have been cases where, like, the speech is saying something's going on in the football team that's really wrong. Like, the coach is pushing people so hard that it's threatening their physical safety, right? Or imagine someone wants to someone just wants to say, you know, I disagree with how this topic is being taught in class, or I disagree with this school policy, right? I would be very concerned about any ability of the school to tell students that they can't say that kind of stuff off campus, right? So it might be that they're talking about, yes, like a matter of public concern, like what's going on in the country, but it might just be they want to talk about something going on in school, And I think there needs to be a lot of protection for that, right? So when you're talking about speech that's actually expressing some sort of viewpoint, I think that's important to protect. And so that first prong goes to that. It says, look, if you're talking about speech that is actually expressing some sort of commentary or critique, then the school shouldn't be able to regulate it. So that's prong one, essentially, that it can't be that. If it is that, then the school shouldn't have any power over it. And you might say, well, what if it's like a mix? Like half of it is just cursing off somebody and then the other half is expressing a viewpoint. Well, in that case, you know, you might have to partition it where the school is like, you have to take down that piece that's just cursing off somebody, but we recognize we can't tell you to take down um, that other piece. Right, so number one would be that. Number two is that the speech has to have some sort of nexus to the school, right? In terms of is it about the school? Is it reasonably foreseeable to reach the school? Does the student intend for it to reach the school? Right, so it's just a student saying something that has nothing to do with the school. That's another situation where the school shouldn't be able to restrict it. OK, so that's factor two. Factor one was the speech can't be genuine commentary critique. Factor two is the speech has to have a close nexus to the school. And then factor three really gets into the tinker standard of the speech has to be reasonably likely to cause some sort of real substantial disruption um, to the learning environment. Now, that doesn't mean it has to like be the entire school would be affected, in my view. If the speech is going after a particular student um, in a very, very harsh way so that like that student now feels like I refuse to come to school anymore, like this is so harsh against me that I'm not comfortable going to school, if it meets those other two prongs, then I would say the school should be able to censor it. right? So you have speech that is not expressing a viewpoint, say it's just targeting a particular student for attack. right? this is another student at the school, it's reasonably likely to reach the school and it's causing a substantial disruption to that student's education, I would say the school should be able to restrict it. And I think that idea of sort of cyber harassment or cyber bullying is very much what's lurking in the background here. And to be clear, I don't think that this snap saying like, fuck cheer, fuck the school, was that at all. I don't think that was gonna substantially disrupt anyone's education, but the fear is what about the case where you do have something that might disrupt a student's education? The Third Circuit has now said schools can't rely on Tinker anymore, right? And then they said, well, we're not taking a position on what to do about harassing speech. Well, that's like really leaving schools now and students in a terrible position where how are the schools now supposed to help students who are the victims of cyberbullying and cyber harassment? They wiped out Tinker and they didn't give them something new to use. So that's what um, this brief is trying to do. And I noticed when I was looking at the other amicus briefs, a number of them are also from organizations that are even more directly like focused on cyberbullying.
4: Bullying and threats and harassment of students are extremely serious problems. Um, students and young people face them in school all the time and um, they can be extremely damaging and harmful to students. Um, importantly, the case BL v. Mahnoy is not about speech that threatens, harasses, or bullies. Um, And limiting tinker to speech that is, you know, inside the school environment would not in any way prevent schools from being able to address the real and significant harms that are caused by harassment, bullying, and threats of violence. Um, So, you know, state and federal law have long prohibited discrimination and other forms of harassment, even if some of that conduct might involve words. Um, And those have always been considered consistent with the First Amendment as speech integral to prescribable conduct. Um, So the First Amendment does not stand in the way of the schools reaching those forms of speech.
0: I think our brief tries to make the point that this is not an all or nothing thing. Like it doesn't have to be that, well, either schools have total power and they can restrict everything or they can't do anything. It is totally possible to distinguish between speech that is expressing a viewpoint, right? Or even expressing commentary, maybe even a controversial opinion, but that is not targeting someone for attack Mm -hmm. and speech that is doing that. And I think you have to be willing to draw a line
1: do you think your average high school student has an any kind of instinct about what they can and cannot say whether they're on or off campus? Do you think they have a, a firm line in their head? Like I'm outside school, I can say what I want and I'm in school, I be, better be careful about what I say. Do you think that's there?
0: Um, I think sort of, I mean, I think, they, I think people definitely feel and some of it is almost subconscious that like when you're in school, they understand, like I, I think I'm sure that the student understood. She couldn't have said to a student like, fuck cheer, fuck the school, right? So I I think people intuitively get that. Um, You know, there's all sorts of research on like, though, when you're at home and like on a computer or on a phone, you feel much less inhibited. Was she really thinking about it in that moment? Who knows? I mean, she was probably frustrated. She posted it on Snapchat, like you said. I think particularly with things like Snapchat, you feel like it's sort of, you know, ephemeral anyway. I think actually... Um, in my ideal world, a test like this would be adopted and then schools would really communicate that to students. You know, like there's a distinction, like, yes, express your views and it's okay. I mean, that that policy that the school district really had about, had about, um, don't say anything that paints the school in a negative light, like that bothers me. I would rather schools be saying, we understand, like on your own time, you might post stuff that's critical of school policies or how things are being done. And like, That's okay. You can express yourself, just do not target particular people for attack or harassment. And -hmm. as long as you're just expressing your views, we're not gonna go after you. You know, We can't and we don't want to. We recognize that you should be able to talk about what goes on in school and you should be able to do so freely, but just you still need to be mindful of people and not attack them as people.
4: Young people are extremely engaged Um, And their voices really matter. They're critical. Um, They're critical in shaping our society. Um, And also our reaction to student speech is critical in shaping their view of our democracy as they grow up and as they see, um, you know, if they feel that their speech is being censored, that sends them a message. Discipline is not the only tool that a school has Um, to address speech that it might find concerning or that it might, you know, trigger conversations that are happening that does not rise to the level of satisfying tinker. Um, So a school is entirely um, entitled to educate its students and call an assembly and talk to its students and start, um, you know, sort of focus groups within the school like happened, which is what happened in Kenton's case. Um, You know, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for schools to sort of take these more um, controversial topics or controversial conversations that are happening and turn them into, uh, you know, learning moments for the students.
1: So how will the court rule in Mahanoy School District VBL? I asked Professor Campbell and Professor Waldman for their
2: predictions. This court has an interesting set of alignments on free speech issues. Uh, Often Justice Breyer and Alito and Thomas are ones that are more open to speech restrictions. And so uh, it's a a somewhat strange uh, alignment in, in relation to what we're used to. The court is likely to recognize that the sort of consequences Uh, For education and the various uh, schooling related activities that happen uh, so called uh, on the school side of the schoolhouse gate um, are not ones that uh, necessarily are immune from the sort of uh, consequences of speech that occurs outside. Uh, and, and particularly in light of the various administrability problems that would come uh, from trying to uh, locate uh, the Internet, so to speak. Uh, it's just not not a thing that uh, really maps onto a physical space. Uh, and so I think at least as a conceptual matter, um, the court is likely to be pretty sympathetic uh, to the argument that there aren't absolute uh, speech rights outside of the uh, schoolhouse uh, gate, so to speak. Um, But there also are a lot of uh, line drawing problems. Once you extend this sort of uh, mushy analysis under the Tinker test uh, past the schoolhouse gate, uh, it opens up a lot of room for administrators to discipline students for things that are not necessarily happening uh, in direct connection to uh, things uh, on school grounds. And I think the court is going to find that problematic and they're going to want to look for some ways to limit. Um, the ability of administrators uh, to discipline students, and I think one of the reasons why is that there will be a concern about uh, student speech rights, but another reason why is the court's going to be really concerned about being flooded with a bunch of cases if administrators start being uh, internet police, because if every case involving uh, administrators suppressing students for their online speech turns into a federal court case, uh, that's really problematic from the standpoint of these judges trying to police uh, boundaries of the First Amendment. So I, th- I think that there's going to be um, uh, both a sort of theoretical aspect of the uh, of the case that the judges will have to think through, but also a very practical aspect. Uh, this is the type of context that forces judges to think about balancing speaker interest and, and governmental interests. And um, this set of justices, particularly the more conservative justices, this court uh, are more formalist and they're going to be really reluctant to do that sort of balancing. And that makes them, I think, more likely to try to search for limiting principles. Uh, So I think that this is a a case that's going to be difficult for them because there are uh, sort of tensions built into the doctrine that they're going to be really struggling to resolve.
0: So what are my predictions? Um, Well, so we have a number of new justices since Morse. right? But based on Morse versus Frederick, which was in um, 2007, I think there, you can do some sort of reading of the tea leaves. So Roberts, um, if you remember, wrote the majority opinion in Morse versus Frederick. And they ended up saying, well, if it's speech that um, could be seen as advocating illegal drug use, which I don't know that that banner really could, but that was sort of how they did it. So they ruled for the school, but on narrow grounds. And in particular, they were also um, concerned about, they didn't want to just say that the school could do anything that they could censor any speech that they thought was contrary to its educational mission. Um, And Alito, if you remember, concurred and said, yes, I'm signing on to this opinion, but on the understanding that it doesn't allow schools to restrict speech that is commenting on a political or social issue, Mm -hmm. right? This banner he thought was like promoting drug use and not commenting on a social or political issue. So Alito also thought it was okay. Judging from Alito and Roberts there, I feel like they might like our three-prong test. which sort of tried to draw the line between speech that is expressing a viewpoint, and they were both concerned about not censoring student speech that expresses an actual viewpoint, but also giving schools authority to restrict speech that truly could be harmful to other students. And I think that Alito and Roberts were concerned about that, right? They said speech that advocates drug use we think could be harmful to other students. So I am hoping that this three-factor test is appealing to them by trying to sort of navigate that line between giving students plenty of room to express their views, including controversial views, but then also being mindful that other students can be hurt by speech. And when you get to the point where it's speech that's actually targeting people for attack, um, that schools need some authority. So the two of them, I think might like it. Now we have some new justices, right? Like Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and um, Barrett and they're new to the court. So I'm not sure we also have, Kagan and Sotomayor and Breyer, and in fact, Kagan and Sotomayor also are new to the court since Morse. So we have a very different court since Morse. Yeah. So it's hard to say, but I am really hopeful, like I said, that they are going to find, they're going to think that some lines need to be drawn, that schools do need authority to deal with cyber bullying and cyber harassing speech, including in my mind, speech that's harassing school officials, not just students. While still leaving enough room for students to express themselves, I feel like there really is a path there. And so I hope I'm, I feel pretty confident that they will find a path and it might not be our exact three factor test, but I feel pretty confident that they are going to adopt a path that is sort of similar in spirit.
1: Many thanks to Professor Waldman, Professor Campbell, and Monique Gillam and Ariana Demas of the ACLU. Oral arguments in Mahanoy School District to BL are on Wednesday, April the 28th. This has been As a Matter of Law, the University of Richmond Law Review podcast. Thanks very much for listening.